and invite you to take your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. Young Zachary was reminding me this morning that I had the passages mixed up and things weren't quite the way they were supposed to. So just to mess it up even worse, we're going to start reading in a different spot than we normally do. We're going to read back at 18, chapter 18 and verse number 18. These are the words of the one true and living God. Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of the brethren and put out to sea for Syria. And with him were Priscilla and Aquila. In Cancrea he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. They came to Ephesus, and he left them there. Now he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay longer, he did not consent, but taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again if God wills, he set sail from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and went down to Antioch. And having spent some time there, he left and passed successively through the Galatian region and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. And we trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his very precious word. God's glory in this text is that Apollos alone, instructed in God's word, God's way, fervent in spirit, boldly, accurately proclaimed what he knew of the things concerning Jesus, growing and learning and continuing. And God gave him to us at this point in the text as an example of what he can do in you and I. Apollos was just an ordinary man, and yet God greatly used him. He would become, in short amount of time, Paul's fellow worker, fellow laborer in the faith. Paul could say of him in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that I've planted, but Apollos has watered, and God has given the increase and the growth. God gave him to us as an example for what he can do in our lives. And as a a pastor and a preacher and somebody who has loved the study of the word of God, a love that was implanted in me by Uncle Jack many years ago, and the Lord too, of course, a passage like this gets us excited. It gets me excited and thinking about what I can encourage and impart to you about a man who is mighty in the scriptures, an eloquent man, a learned man, a man who is instructed in the way of the Lord and zealously, boldly proclaiming the way of God to the people. But the story doesn't begin there. The story actually begins, as you see the context of both Acts 18 and Acts 19, it begins back in Luke chapter 3 and verses 2 to 18. And what we see there is that the word of God came to John the Baptist and he came out of the wilderness and he was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins and calling out, prepare or make ready the way of the Lord. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He would say a bit later, one who is coming, someone is coming, sorry, who is mightier than I, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And he carried on with many other exhortations, preaching the gospel to the people. You go forward about three plus years, three and a half years perhaps. In Acts chapter 2, the Bible tells us that they were living in Jerusalem on Pentecost morning, devout men from every nation. And given the list of nations in verse 10, it it describes Egypt. You say, what's the significance of that? 
All we see is Apollos is a man who is Alexandrian by birth. He lived and grew up in Egypt. And I'm absolutely convinced as I read and studied the text that this man was truly a believer. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He understood what it was to to pursue righteousness and holiness and godliness. That's what the way of the Lord is all about. He knew what it was to have the spirit of God at work in him. And when it says he's fervent in spirit, I'm absolutely convinced, along with a lot of older writers, it's funny, the older writers would all say he was a believer. Some of the more modern writers would say, well, we're not entirely sure. And I think in reality, he can be quite sure. He's very much an Old Testament believer at this point. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to look at this godly example. Look at the example of what God has done in the life of this man. I want us to look together and see what God might do in our lives. There's some calls on us, things that we need to do. But I'm convinced that God has not changed. That the gospel needs to be preached. That men of God are desperately needed in this time as in every other time in the period of history, in in the whole history. Godly men are needed. Men like Apollos. While we want to see, you should have a green little note sheet there with an outline you can follow along on. And I want us to see, first of all, that we are to follow the example of Apollos' education. You'll notice it says there that he was an eloquent man and he was an Alexandrian by birth. He was most likely educated in a university. Alexandria was a place of great learning. A fantastic library was there. There were schools there. Uh, You may know that some 200 years before this, uh, 70 scholars had assembled and written the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. It was there in Alexandria. A man named Philo was there. He was a very learned man. And it says of Apollos that he was an eloquent man. And that word, you should have a little marginal rendering, it says, or a learned man. And the idea behind that word eloquent is the idea that he was uh, skilled. He was educated. He was able to speak very well. He knew all of rhetoric. He knew how to engage in an argument. He was like a masterful lawyer standing in front of a courtroom, making an argument, presenting a case. He was a highly skilled and a learned man. And I would say to us this morning that an education in university is a good thing. And I would write behind that, I would say, it's not necessary. (laughs) In fact, in the day and age we're in, I would say that university education might lead you down a wrong path very quickly. Very, very quickly. In fact, I have favorite preachers. There are men in history I just look up to and admire. Uh, I love John Bunyan. John Bunyan was an uneducated tinker. He used to take bronze pots and braise them and fix and repair and make bronze and copper uh, kitchen implements uneducated man. And when he was coming to preach, I said that as he rode into London, there would be thousands riding out and running to get to where Bunyan was going to preach. John Owen's one of the most highly educated men at the same time. And John Owen and John Bunyan are friends. And the king looked at John Owen and said, why is it you race off to see the, the tinker preach? And John Owen said words effective, oh, If I could preach like the tinker, I'd give up all my learning. They said about John Bunyan, if you pricked him, if you cut his skin, he would bleed Bible. He was so soaked in the Bible. Uh, We used to tease Uncle Jack when we were kids. He used to read the King James. And and we weren't, not that the King James is a point of teasing, but whenever he spoke, he he just came out as uh, thus saith, and he had the eths and the ifs on the end of all of his words. And and we used to say, you know, Jack came out of the womb speaking King James. It's just, he was so entrenched in the scriptures. Bunyan, Spurgeon, Martin Lloyd-Jones, never once did the three of them spend a day in Bible school or in seminary. Yes, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had an education, but his whole time was was in medical education, not in theology and scripture. And Apollos was a learned man. He was an educated man. And I would say that education is valuable. You can learn a lot of good things from education, but when it comes to scriptures, it's not necessary. Spurgeon wrote the greatest collection of works, I think, possibly besides uh, Augustine. 
in the English language anyway, he wrote the most number of words in scriptural comment in sermons and so on. Never spent a day in Bible school. So he was learned, but a university is not necessary. But notice also in verse number 25, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. One writer said that's, that could be phrased the way that leads to God. John the Baptist's proclamation was prepare the way of the Lord. The way of the Lord would include things like righteousness and holiness and repentance and faith. He had been instructed. The idea there is something in the past that the effects of it carry on all the way into the future. If you look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 7, it gets the idea here. Uh, The word instructed, by the way, is a word that we get our word catechized for. Just out of curiosity, anybody here get catechized when you were a kid growing up? One, a couple, two, three, yeah. You know what catechism is? They ask you a question, what is the chief end of man? And everybody responds, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Unless you're John Piper, then it's glorify God by enjoying him forever. And the catechism is a a question-answer way of teaching and instructing young people in the word of God. He had been catechized in the way of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 7, uh, Moses instructs the parents of the people of Israel, you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. It's the idea of regular, repeated instruction in the things of God. Parents... That's our responsibility. Children, it's your responsibility when you get mom and dad drag you to catechism because I didn't get catechized when I was growing up, but I did hear a lot of negative comments about catechism. It wasn't the most fun, apparently. But what it does is it instills biblical truth into the heart and mind. This young man, Apollos, had been instructed in the way of the Lord. You say, what do you mean by the way? What does that phrase actually mean? In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, Moses again instructs the people of God. And he says, now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and serve the Lord, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments. The way of the Lord included fearing the Lord. Apollos, I'm convinced because his parents were faithful Jews and he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, he had been taught what it means to fear the Lord your God. What's the fear of the Lord? It's the beginning of knowledge. It's the beginning of wisdom. So this man arrives. He's a learned, educated man, instructed in the way of the Lord. He had been taught diligently the fear of the Lord. He'd been taught to serve the Lord, to love the Lord. He'd been taught what it means about repentance of sin and faith in God. He was an educated man. But what I want you to see is I don't want you to see Apollos and go, wow, Apollos is such a cool guy. Let's all be like Apollos. What I want us to see is the work of God in Apollos' heart. I want you to see what God was doing. He used that instruction to greatly use this man of God. By his spirit, he'd awakened Apollos. I'm convinced he was a believer. No man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit, Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He came and proclaimed those things. He continued to be instructed. Notice in verse 26, it says, He began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And like every faithful preacher and teacher out there, he was continually being educated. He was continually learning and growing and being instructed in the things of God. And I love the way, we'll get to this a little bit later, but I love the way he humbly received that instruction from these two basically uneducated tradies, leather workers. He sat and listened to what they had to say and was instructed. So Apollos was instructed in the, in the universities, which are not necessary. He was instructed in the way of the Lord. He was instructed continually. But beyond that, he was also, he was also mighty in the scriptures. Now, there's a phrase. You just, 
you just going to sit and let that sink in. Um, anybody here know the name John Broadus? No? Not many or any old Reformed Baptist here. The, the name of John Broadus, he was a Civil War chaplain in America in the southern states. Uh, he was also a very devout Christian. And after the Civil War, he and I think two other men got together and they formed a little seminary called what's now called the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And the first class, the first day, John Broadus got up and he was an excellent preacher of the Word of God. And he read this text. And the legend, the story is that as he read this text, he paused on the phrase, he was mighty in the scriptures. And he looked at the 20 young men sitting in front of him in this tiny little Bible school, no more than a one school, one room school room. And apparently he leaned over and he pounded on the, on the pulpit, mighty in the scriptures. Men, mighty in the scriptures. Let it sink in. And his goal, his desire, as he gathered those men around him to teach them the word of God, to teach them theology and history and hermeneutics and all the other great stuff, was that he would raise up and build a generation of men who were mighty in the scriptures. And this young man, Apollos, shows up. And the idea behind mighty in the scriptures means that he knew them, he understood them. He was able to present and defend his belief from Scripture. He was able to use the Scriptures to fight the battles of the faith. He was mighty in the Scriptures. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when they put you in the ground one day, could they write as an eternal epitaph over your headstone, here lies Edward, I'll pick on you, Eli's Edward, he was mighty in the scriptures. My prayer is he will, by the way. Brother and sister in Christ, if you were to die today, could they ride across your tomb, mighty in the scriptures? Are you one who knows and understands and is able to use the scriptures? This, isn't, this is God's work in him, absolutely. The emphasis is on the scriptures, not so much his ability, but there's still his ability is involved in it. And it's not just the ability to speak publicly, to, to, rhetor, to be a rhetorician, to be a speaker. <laughs> I didn't go to university in case you hadn't figured it out yet. That wasn't the point. The point was that he was able to use the scriptures. He's like Ezra in Ezra chapter 7, verses 6 and verse 10. The Bible says that this Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. He understood and he grasped the law. He knew what it meant. He knew how the phrases worked, how the the passages worked together. He could take the Old Testament scriptures and he could construct an argument and a defense and he could powerfully present it. He had a tremendous grasp of the Old Testament at the risk of making an idol out of Uncle Jack. I'll tell you one more thing about him you may not know. I might have mentioned, I don't know. When you looked at his Bible, it, like mine, closes kind of parallel, right? His didn't close parallel. His looked more like, like that when it was closed tight. What I mean is the pages were so wrinkled, so much highlighter, so much ink pen. He had made notes over everything. Uh, I watched this cool video. We're going to uh, UK in October. And uh, we watched this video about this guy who had gone there ahead of us. And, and he had made all these little cool videos about great Christian places to go visit. And he had a copy of it was George Mueller's Bible in his hand. And it was, it was, you know, old. It's like a, over 100 years old. And he said, look at this. And he opened it up like this, and he showed it to the camera. And every page was filled with little tiny ink markings and pens and notes. And he had a tremendous grasp of the Scriptures. And listen, God uses men who are mighty in the Scriptures. God uses women who are mighty in the Scriptures. God powerfully used this man. Young man, young woman... I'm asking you, could that be written over your life? My prayer for all of us out of this message is that more of us could sit and say, you know what, I have a desire to know the Bible. I'm going to entrench my life in the Bible. 
I'm going to give up what is necessary to spend more time in the word of God, not just reading it, but becoming skillful at using it, understanding it, grasping its message and its themes. I think maybe he was like uh, Timothy. This is Paul's words to Timothy. This is his exhortation to Timothy. Timothy, be diligent. Study, the old King James says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Can that be written across our lives? You say, how do I do that? I I, want to do that. How do I do it? Okay, I'll give you three strategies to do this. You can write this down if you want. Number one is an easy one. You read it, memorize it, meditate it, reflect on it, obey it, and study it. You think, maybe I got that twice, right? I said read and study. No, that's not twice. That's two different things. I know somebody, I won't, I won't uh, embarrass them by you know, saying who they are or pointing in their general direction or anything, but I know somebody who sits down with her Bible for a couple hours a day with a notebook and reads and summarizes and praises and asks questions and reads, and, and the, the growth curve in this dear sister is like this. And learn the Bible. It's reading it. It's studying it. It's memorizing. It's meditating. The Bible says more about meditating on Scripture than it does just reading to get through it. It's chewing over it. That's that number one strategy. Read, memorize, meditate, reflect, write back, write what you're understanding down, and obey it. Ezra was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses. He had set his heart to study, number one, of the law of the Lord, to practice it, number two, and thirdly, lastly, to teach it. He put what he was learning into practice before he taught it. The second strategy is this. Take the book of Romans. Get yourself a really good uh, cross-reference Bible. You know what they are, the, the little strip on the side or the middle. It's got all the little cross-references in it. Read the book of Romans. Take Romans 1 and verse 1. Look at the cross-references. Look up every one of them and see how they relate to Romans 1 verse 1. Make some notes. Go to the next verse and just keep going all the way through the book of Romans. What you'll do is you'll start in Romans and you'll be all over the Bible looking up and seeing how the whole thing reflects and ties itself together. It's an excellent way to get a comprehensive grasp of Scripture. Third one is this. You say, there's 66 books I struggle to get through in a year. Here's my advice to you. Take six of those 66 books and master six foundational books. You say, which ones are those? Genesis, you won't understand the end if you don't understand the beginning. Isaiah, it's the whole gospel in one book. Luke, it is the most comprehensive of the gospels. Romans, It's the entire gospel message packaged in a tiny piece. It's rich in theology. And the last one is Hebrews is the next one. It's a whole Bible in one book. It weaves all the parts together. And Psalms is a great book. There's so much theology, and it's the expression of a man's heart back to God in prayer and worship. There's rich theology. You master those six books, everything else will fit into its place. But brothers and sisters, don't go home and say, it's too much. I can't do it. Go home and make a resolution that's starting, not tomorrow, because tomorrow never comes. I know I'm always starting a diet tomorrow, but it never comes. You should make a resolution to start today and become a man who was mighty in the scriptures. Become a woman who was mighty in the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, this world needs This church desperately needs men and women who are mighty in the scriptures, understanding it, putting it together. Let me give this as as an encouragement and a a direct command from scripture. Joshua chapter 1 verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but thou shalt meditate on it day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For when thou doest... That's not what it says. Uh, Then you shall have, you shall make your way prosperous and you shall be successful. I memorized in the King James many years ago and I got the NASB in front of me and the two two versions are like colliding. So I was trying to do it from memory, but it didn't quite work. You got the point. 
Don't let the book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it. Be careful to do it. And then you will make your way prosperous and have good success. Brothers and sisters, look and see. Look and see in the text a young man that God powerfully used in ministry in the early church, a man who he had educated, who had been instructed in a way, who was mighty in the scriptures, and secondly, he had a godly character. I want you to notice three things about his character. Number one, he was fervent in spirit. Number two, he was bold in speaking. And number three, he was humble when instructed. So first of all, he was fervent in spirit. We see that in, uh, I lost my, there it is. We see that in verse number 25. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. I don't think it's any mistake that instructed comes first and fervent in spirit comes second. Because it's absolutely critical thing that if we have lots of doctrine and no fervency, not much good. A lot of knowledge all packed in a package, but it doesn't do anything. If we have great fervency and, and no doctrine, no instruction in the word of God, we're dangerous, really dangerous. And a lack of both is obviously just not a good thing. So he puts it instructed in the way of the Lord first. And then he says he was fervent in spirit. The idea behind that word literally means he was boiling in spirit. There was a great enthusiasm within Seething is kind of the idea. You say, well, what, what is it that made him so upset? Why was he so fervent in spirit? And I'm convinced as Apollos had understood and became mighty in the scriptures, understanding, understanding the way of the Lord, that he was so burning inside as he looked around and he saw ungodly men and women doing ungodly pagan things and they owned their allegiance, their faith, their obedience to the one living and true God. And his spirit was boiling up within him. And he had to go out and make the gospel known. What he knew of Christ. We'll, look, we'll get to what, how much he knew in a little bit. But he was boiling in spirit. John Calvin says he was moved by the spirit. Aglow with the spirit. John Gill, who was a Baptist preacher who occupied Spurgeon's pulpit about a hundred years before him, said this. He said, Apollos' soul was inflamed with zeal for the glory of God, the honor of Christ, and the good of souls. Isn't that great? His, I'll read it again. His soul was inflamed with zeal for the glory of God, the honor of Christ, and the good of souls. My brother, my sister, let me ask you, what, what is it your soul burns about? What is it that gets you wound up? What does it get you wanting to act and resolve something you see? What is it? I think John Gill's words are beautiful. He was inflamed with zeal for the glory of God. You read through the history of great men and great women, great preachers, great missionaries. You see one theme come up over and over and over again. They had a zeal. They had a passion for the glory of God. And he was passionate. He was zealous for Christ's honor and the good of souls. Matthew Henry said, He had not the miraculous gifts of the Spirit, but made use of the gifts he had. He got down there and he got busy preaching the gospel with what he had. And I'm still convinced that Apollos, from these words here, was truly a believer. Because the Bible says in Romans chapter 12 and verse 11, that not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. That's an explanation, that's a description of a New Testament Christian. It's the exact same phrase. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3, Paul said, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So this young man came, instructed in the way of the Lord, mighty in scriptures and fervent in spirit. He was a zealot. Now the great problem we've got in our day and age is that the word zealot has a very bad connotation to it. People are called zealots who blow themselves up in, in parking lots and in malls. People are called zealots who go out and shoot other people. But you know, that's not what it was originally. 
In fact, what this world needs is Christians who are zealous for the Lord, on fire for God. Jesus was one such. Let me read what the Bible says. In John chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, the Bible says that Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and money changers seated at their tables, and he made a scourge of cords, a multi-stranded whip, and drove them all out of the temple. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what this world needs to see is young men, young women, never mind young, middle-aged men and women, not only them, old-aged men and women who are zealous for the Lord, who are willing to walk into places maybe and flip over some tables and say, hey, stop, repent and believe, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Brothers and sisters, some faiths and religions suffer from overzeal. I would argue that Christianity suffers greatly from underzeal. Brothers and sisters, we're so caught up with the world in which we live that we don't have time and mind and zeal for the world which we are going to. We don't have a zeal for the God who owns this world, this world. We don't have a zeal for the God who is king of this world, is ruling in righteousness, and we are his people, and we're so caught up with the stuff of this world, we don't have time. That's a shame to us and a rebuke to us. This man arrived in Ephesus fervent in spirit. He was bold in speaking. Verse number 26, the idea of boldness is he had confidence in God, not men. Something else here, boldness comes from a fear of God, not men. Paul Washer is a preacher I much respect. He said one time he was at a church and he had invited to preach, and he got into that church and he began preaching. And he rocked the boat on a few really key issues and really stirred things up. And he finished preaching, and a young man came up to him. He told me this story, told us the story in New Zealand. Young man came up to him and he said, Brother Paul, you better be careful. I said, he said, why? He said, you see all those men at the back door there? They're mad at you. They're going to get you as you walk out. And he looked at the young guy and he said, I'm more afraid of God than I am of those men. And he walked out and endured whatever they said to him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Not just fear for what they will fall into, not just fear of what they face if they don't repent and believe the gospel, but fear of the Lord, having an awe and a respect and a healthy fear for the living God. That gives us boldness. Paul Washer said at a different time, I am more aware of the presence of God with me than I am anybody else in the room. So I don't, I'm not afraid to say what God gives me to say. And what this world needs, what our community, what this, this place needs is men and women who are zealous for the Lord, who are instructed in the way, who are fearing the Lord and are coming and speaking boldly. You see, where where does that kind of boldness come from? Well, the scriptures give us a great answer, or four of them. Where does boldness come from? Acts 4, verse 31, the Bible says, When they had prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. It comes as a result of prayer. It comes as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking about any kind of second blessing or anything like that. I'm talking about the Spirit of God exerting that great influence in my life. That produces boldness. But it requires of me that I put aside the things that are hindering the work of God in my life. It it requires me to sit down and go, you know what? If I keep engaging in this activity or that activity, if I keep watching those kind of videos or reading those kind of books, if I keep engaging with those friends on more than a missionary evangelistic level, the work of the Spirit of God is going to be hindered within me. 
And so I put off the old man and I put on Christ and I plead with God for boldness. And the Spirit of God gives us that boldness. In Ephesians 6, 19, the Bible says, or Paul says, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my, make, my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. It's prayer, again. Prayer for one another that we will speak out with boldness. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 12, the Bible says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. I'm just curious, does anybody know of a bigger, better hope than one we've got? Thank you. I mean it, thank you. There isn't one. We've got the best hope going. There isn't another faith out there that comes in within an infinity of distance to this faith to give us a great hope. And what does hope produce? Boldness. But the problem is, brothers and sisters, I'm convinced the reason why we don't see Apollos' as much anymore is that men and women are allowing too many things to cloud their view and hinder their sight on the greatness of God. Allowing too many things to divert their attention away from the scriptures, away from the glory of God, and instead of being soaked up by the junk of the world. And so we have no zeal and we have no boldness. And the Spirit of God is hindered from moving in our lives. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 2, the Bible says, After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, we had the boldness in our God to speak the word again. I love that story. Puts me to shame. You see uh, Paul and Silas as they come hobbling into Thessalonica. They're still bruised and battered. Their muscles are aching and sore, possibly broken bones from all they endured. And with those battered, bruised, and bloody bodies, they begin again to preach the gospel. Why? Because they had a boldness in their God. It's a God-given thing. But brothers and sisters, we can cry out to God for boldness to speak, boldness to live for God, whether anybody else around us does or not, to stand alone. So he was zealous, he was bold, and thirdly, he was humble when instructed. Look at verse 26 again. The Bible says that he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained him the way of God more accurately. Aquila and Priscilla are tradies, leather workers, tent makers. Apollos has got, let's just give him some credit and say he's got a Ph.D., he rocks up in Ephesus and he begins preaching and this humble, quiet, young or maybe older couple take him alongside and they take him away from the group and they sit him down and Apollos listens to these two tradies as they speak to him and explain the way of God more fully. Every writer I read said the same thing. That takes humility. Apollos fully knew and understood who he was before God. He knew he was nothing more than a man being used by God, and he was willing to accept the instruction of somebody else. I had someone else do that to me last Friday after church. You got that verse wrong. (laughs) I went home, and I was like, no, I didn't. And immediately in my self-righteous indignation, what do you know, I'm 53, you're not. And I went home and started researching, and you know what I had to admit? Yeah, he was right. (laughs) which is really annoying, I have to admit, also. And I had to phone him back and say, you know what? You're right. I did make a mistake. I didn't say anything theologically wrong. Don't worry. I didn't say anything that was heretical. It's just not what that verse was saying. And I'll I'll fill you all in on the first Sunday in May. We'll we'll look at that passage and I'll unpack it and explain it because it's a beautiful passage and worth going through. And I'll leave you wondering what that was until then. But here's the point. Apollos, this man of God, this tremendously skilled and learned, he's able to speak. He's the idea. um, You ever heard uh, James Earl Jones do one of those oratory things? He's got that great big voice and he can can speak from memory and he can command and control audiences with the abuse and the power of his voice and his ability to public speak. That's what I think of when I think of Apollos as an eloquent man. And these two rough-as-guts tradies 
with their leather in their hands and their tools and probably got scars and, and calluses from all the work they've done over many years. Uh, good friends of Paul sit him down. Notice what they do. They take him aside privately and quietly. They don't embarrass him. They don't stand up in the, in the synagogue and say, hey, time out. That's not right. You missed something. And that tells me a couple of things. Number one, what he was saying was obviously not such a big deal that it had to be publicly refuted or publicly corrected. They just took him aside and said, come over for lunch and, and we'll have a good chat. And they sat him down and they went through some stuff with him. And he quietly listened and he learned. There was a humility in this man. By the way, what did he get wrong? I have a stack of commentaries, like not joking, like that high. If you pile them all up on the book of Acts, and they all devote a couple of long sections on what was it that he got wrong. Let me tell you. Ready? I'll give it to you. We have no idea because it doesn't tell us what he got wrong. And again, I think that's the grace of God, isn't it? It's the grace of God that in instructing him and working with him and building him up, they just quietly tell him that he got to be further instructed in something. And so that's all it is. And after that, he wants to carry on in ministry. And what does the church do? They write him letters and they send him off with their blessing. He was a man greatly used by God because God was greatly at work in him. And without that humility to accept the instruction of others, he would have been useless. In fact, the best thing they could have done is said, go back to Alexandria until you grow up a little bit. But brothers and sisters in Christ, look and see. Look and see a man who was used by God, a man in whom God was working a man instructed in the way of the Lord, a man mighty in the scriptures, a man fervent in seal, a man boldly speaking, and a man humbly accepting what God had given him to know and learn. Look and see, brothers and sisters, what God can do with one like you or me when we give ourselves to rigorous Bible studies, to know God and to be conformed to him. I've emphasized young men. I'm going to stop for a second and a little time out and emphasize old, older person. Hopefully this will be politically correct. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. I'll try not to. Listen, it doesn't matter how old you are, okay? I've heard too often, well, you know, back when I was younger, I could have done that, but I'm too old now. I knew of a missionary who came home from the mission field at 90 years of age, 9-0. Anybody here 90 years old? I didn't think so. Good. He was 90 years of age. He, learned, he bought a computer, learned how to use it, and started writing books on theology at 90. Don't give me this, I'm too old to do this, that, or the other thing. God has, do you know Brother Noel? God bless him. We were in a hospital. He's got cancer. You know, he's got all kinds of things going on. You know what he's telling me about? What he wants to do in ministry when he gets out of hospital. I'm like, Noel, just relax, settle. Okay, you get better first. We'll talk about that later. But that's what his focus was doesn't matter how old you are. If you start today, you can accomplish great things because it's not just you. It's God at work in you. Look at this young man. Maybe, maybe he was older. I, I'm saying young. I just kind of assumed he's young. Maybe he was a middle-aged man. But God was at work in his life. And look at the results of that work. Brother and sister in Christ, I'm calling on us, on us all to submit to the scriptures, to strive with all of our hearts to know God as we strive to know scripture, to allow God to use what we learn of scripture to develop those godly characteristics in us that we might be useful for ministry. And he was. Our last point, we look at the example of Apollos' service and ministry. His goal, first of all, I believe, and I'm convinced, was to glorify God. But his second was to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, to help and edify the believers. Notice in verse number 27, the Bible says, he began, sorry, he went in, when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who believed through grace. His ministry of the word of God to those believers in Corinth was to help them. 
He was a man who could have gone on the public circuit oratory, preaching and speaking, and raped a great deal of money from his abilities. But his goal was to help the people of God, to teach them the things of God, to teach them the scriptures. I'm sure of that. Our goal in ministry is to help and to edify, to build up. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12 says, Since you're zealous of spiritual gifts, seek to abound for personal uh, progress, right? That is not what the text says. He says, seek to abound for edification of the church. In other words, desire those spiritual gifts. Become mighty in the scriptures that you might edify and build up the church. Well, I can't preach. Fantastic. Can you talk to someone on the phone? Yes. Can you send a text message? Yes. An email? Yep. You can communicate and you can come alongside brothers and sisters in Christ and share a word of encouragement. Get together. I was here in the middle of the week and a couple times somebody came in with somebody else. They sat down and they, they talked in the back room over there and then they prayed together and spent some time in the word together and built one another up. It's a fantastic time. I did it with a couple of young guys. It was such an encouragement. The goal is to me to help them. But you know what's happening? They're encouraging me. That's exactly what happens every time we do that. When we go in with a desire to minister and share the word of God with one another, to build one another up in our most holy faith. You know what happens? Every time we get encouraged. Are you discouraged this morning? Yeah, a lot of us are. May I give you one of the most unheard of antidotes for discouragement? Pick up your Bible, look around for somebody who needs some encouragement, and go encourage them. You'll be amazed at how God turns that encouragement back onto the giver and builds them up as well. His goal was to minister, to help, and to edify In Ephesians 4.29, the Bible says, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, for building up, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. There is a desperate need, brothers and sisters, to build one another up. It's not just the job of the pastor and the elders and even the deacons. It's the job of every believer in the church to get alongside one another, to build one another up. Don't wait for someone to come to you to build you up. Go out and look to build someone else up. You see, I don't know much about the scriptures. Do you know anything? Yes. Share that. Share that with an older believer in the faith. You will have no idea how encouraging it is to hear a young believer come alongside and say, Hey! Did you see this? This is so cool. The Bible says, for God so loved the world. Did you see that, brother? And you go, yeah, I've seen that. That's cool. And they start explaining, and they're so full of zeal over a verse you've heard thousands of times. But you'd be amazed at how much it encourages the one hearing it and builds up the one who's doing the speaking too. Secondly, he ministered to things concerning Jesus. And we see it in verse number 25. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit. He was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. You know, it's almost exactly the same phrase as Luke 24 and verse 47. It talks about how uh, Jesus took them and opened the scriptures to them. It's not verse 47, it's a different one, 43, I think. And he says he explained to them all the things concerning himself, the things concerning himself, the things concerning Jesus. Apollos, however much he knew of Christ, however much he knew from John's teaching and preaching about the Christ who had come, he took what he knew and he used it to build up and to teach and to speak to those, to inform and educate and communicate with those who hadn't heard. Listen. What else do we do? Hands up here who has perfect knowledge of Christ. Anybody here got a perfect knowledge of Christ? I don't, guarantee you. I know Poovin doesn't. I know not. Wes doesn't. None of us do. So what are all of us doing? We're striving to speak and teach accurately the things that we know of Christ. And I'm still learning, and I'm going to go on learning for all the rest of eternity. But between now and then, all of us, as ministers of the word in whatever context or 
environment God places you, we can speak and teach accurately the things that we know concerning Christ. Even if all you know is I'm a sinner and Jesus died for me and I'm forgiven of my sin and I love Jesus. If that's all you know, that's tremendously powerful in the right ears. He spoke the things concerning Jesus. Notice also in verse 28, he ministered to refute error. He spoke in the, to the Jews of the idea in verse number 28. He powerfully refuted the Jews in public. That is a public debate. So they're having this debate in Corinth about Christ, and he refutes the Jews. He uses the Old Testament scriptures, which is all they had, to powerfully point out error. And one of the responsibilities of ministry is to point out error and to refute it, not just by force of assertion, but by the scriptures. Because you know what it says? It says he uh, powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. His ministry was based and founded, and the spring, uh, the, the fountain of his ministry was the scriptures. And he used them to refute error. And the last thing I want to say is this. He used it to minister the gospel because he demonstrated by the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Which brings me to the best part of the message, the gospel message. He demonstrated that Jesus is, was in the text, but is the Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, I want to take, take your Bibles and just flip over there. We want to finish with this. This young man, eloquent, mighty in the scriptures, instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, speaking boldly. He stood up and he powerfully demonstrated from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. He preached the gospel. And Paul wrote years later to, to the, the same place, Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 15, one day, he says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That Christ was buried, and that Christ was raised on the third day, according to scripture. And that Christ appeared to Cephas, and to the twelve, and the five hundred, and Paul, and so on. Here's the gospel. He died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Uh, Apollos, I'm convinced, took the Old Testament scriptures and using Psalm 22, Isaiah 52 and 53, and other texts beside, he powerfully demonstrated that this Jesus who had died on a cross was their Messiah. This Jesus that died on the cross died for your sin and for mine. And he argued from the scriptures that case. The Bible tells us with no hesitation that the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He preached the gospel that Jesus died. He preached the good news that Jesus was buried, making absolutely sure, ruling out any other controversy. He truly was dead. He died on the cross. He didn't swoon or faint. He died and he was buried but Christ was also raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And brothers and sisters, the great message of the gospel is that we, born in sin, loving sin, committing sin all the time, enjoying and loving sin more than enjoying and loving God, we all stand under the penalty of death for that sin. But Christ died for our sins. He died to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine. He was buried in a tomb. But the great news of the gospel is he rose again on the third day. Up from the grave he arose. Triumphant. Victorious over all his foes. He defeated death and sin and the grave in his suffering and his death. 
He rose again that we might be declared righteous before God. All that is required of us is that we would turn away from our sin and turn toward God. We would trust in God for our salvation and know what it is to be forgiven and freed. To have a great hope. Hope of eternal life. To know the filling of the Holy Spirit. To live this life. To live walking in the way of the Lord like Apollos was doing. Only possible by the Spirit of God in us. He preached the gospel to them. The Bible tells us in Acts 17 verses 30 and 31 that God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. And it takes us right back to the very beginning of the sermon. Back to the beginning of this message. It began with John the Baptist standing on the shores of the river crying out to people as they walked back and forth, repent. Turn away from your sin. The kingdom of God is at hand. The king is coming. You better straighten it up. Fill in the the hollow places. Level off the high places. Make straight the crooked road. Walk in righteousness and holiness. Repent of your sin because the king is coming. And the message of the gospel is exactly the same today. Repent of sin because Christ is coming again. Amen? He's coming. And what this world around us, what all of us need to hear is the same message. We need to repent of our sin and trust in Christ for salvation for the king is coming. And when he comes, the Bible says in Acts 17 verse 31, God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. That's our savior. Amen. That's our Savior. That's our Lord. He's coming again. And brothers and sisters, because he's coming again, because there is a work to do, there is a need for men and women working in hospital rooms and boardrooms and courtrooms, on the job sites, in kitchens and in homes, in schools and universities, wherever God has placed you. There's a need, a a desperate need for men like Apollos, instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit, mighty in the scriptures, boldly speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, making Christ known because he's coming back. And the world we live in might like to think he's coming back like he came the first time, a harmless and defenseless baby in a manger, but he's coming back as a triumphant, victorious warrior king. And he's going to rule. He's already ruling, but he's going to rule. The question is, are we prepared? Are we ready to meet the king? Brother and sister in Christ, is there a mountain in your life, pride, sin, disobedience, rebellion that needs to be torn down that the road may be flat and straight? Is there something missing in your life that you need to put in there? A renewed commitment to prayer, a renewed commitment to time in the word of God, a renewed commitment to evangelization, a renewed commitment to godliness that needs to be filled in because it's missing. Is the way you're walking straight and narrow Or is it crooked and broad and you're all over the map? Brother and sister in Christ, come. Come and stand at the foot of the cross. Come as you come to the table. And renew in your own heart and your own mind that you will be like Apollos in the sense that you will submit to the work of God in your life with a striving to be mighty in the scriptures, to understand the way of the Lord, to walk in zeal and boldness with humility that God may greatly use you wherever he has placed you. I'm going to take a few moments and just in absolute quietness, encourage you, invite you to take some time to just spend a moment with the Lord. Reflect on what you've heard and respond to God in prayer. And then I'm going to close in prayer and we'll go to the table.
Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come again. And Father, confronted with the Word of God, confronted with the description of this man. And Father, we recognize in everything that it's said about him, it is your hand at work in his life. Your hand that brought along teachers and parents to instruct him in the way of the Lord. Your hand, O God, that made him an eloquent man. It was your work, O God, that made him mighty in the scriptures. Father, it was your work that he was fervent in spirit and speaking and teaching accurately, speaking boldly. But Father, it was your work also that made him a humble man, willing to accept instruction. O God, I pray, I plead with you, O Lord, that I would be that Apollos, mighty in the scriptures, fervent in spirit, boldly speaking, humble. O God, I cry out also for all of the people sitting in this room before me. Father, for those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, Father, we pray that by the power of the Spirit of God, you would awaken them, open their eyes to see the glory and the beauty of Christ. Open their eyes to see the truth of the gospel, that you so loved them, that you gave your only begotten Son, that if they would believe, they would not perish but have everlasting life. Father, I cry out to you for all of us who do know the Lord. But Father, we have allowed the things of this world to slip in, to settle in. And they are hindering, O God, our walk with you. They're hindering the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Father, I pray, I plead with you, O God, that we would be zealous to remove those things, to put off the old man and to put on Christ. Father, to be fervent in zeal, fervent in spirit, zealous for the Lord, a zeal for the glory of God, the honor of Christ and the soul's good, all men's souls. Father, I pray that we would be bold to speak, whether it's in an office or it's on a street corner or to a neighbor, wherever it might be. Father, I pray for boldness for all of us. I pray for humility. Help us, O God, as we would keep going to teach and speak the things that we know of Christ. But, Father, help us to ever be increasing in our knowledge and understanding of Christ. Lord, we give thanks. We praise you, O God, for his ministry to help, to edify, to build up the church. His ministry, O God, to make Christ known, to refute error and preach the gospel. Father, from this church, I plead with you, O God, that you would raise up a whole army not just young people, Father, but young, old, middle-aged, little ones with a zeal for God. Father, we would give thanks beyond all of this. Father, we just turn our gaze again towards the cross. We would give thanks, O God, for the Lord Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, sinless, holy, righteous life, in perfect obedience to everything you gave him to do. The Son of God who is truly God and truly man. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who, having no sin of his own, took our sin upon himself, was made to be sin in our place, to bear the full the full weight of your anger against us for our sin. Father, we thank you that he has suffered and died, but Father, we praise you and we rejoice with a great joy that he has been raised again. He who was alive and was dead is alive forevermore. Father, we thank you and we praise you that he is indeed ruling and reigning on high. But Father, we also realize again that he is coming again. He is coming to judge the world in righteousness. 
not the judgment of men, shifting shadows and uncertain realities, but the judgment of God in righteousness, your righteousness. No unsaved sinner will escape that day. And no saved saint will be lost. Father, we rejoice in those realities. Father, we pray that you would take us, give us zeal to preach the gospel to those around us, that when that day comes, they would stand alongside of Christ, knowing salvation. Father, we ask you all these things. We plead with you, O God, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.